you would, stand with me as we go to our text this morning. We are in the last chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah 13. But we will be beginning in verse 4, and I'll explain the reason why in a moment. But we'll be starting in Nehemiah 13 in verse 4. Before we begin, we uh, always say a, a Hebrew prayer called the Shema out of Deuteronomy 6. It's a way to commit yourself, uh, uh, recommit yourself to the Lord before we go to the text. So please say it after me. Hear, O Israel. Oh my goodness, I totally blank. I do this every time. Hear, Israel. The Lord is our God. The Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart. With all your soul. With all your might. Amen. Amen. All right, all right. We all make mistakes. <laughs> These are the very words of God. Before this, Elishab, the priest, had been put in charge of the storerooms of the house of our God. He was closely associated with Tobiah, if you remember him. And he had provided him with a large room formerly used to store the grain offerings and the incense and table articles, and also the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil prescribed for the Levites, musicians, and gatekeepers, as well as the contributions for the priests. But while all of this was going on, I was in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I had asked his permission to come back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Elisha had done in providing Tobiah room in the courts of the house of God. And I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and musicians responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, Why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and, si- and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought their tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil into the storerooms. I put Shemaiah, the priest, Z- Zadok, the scribe, and the Levite named Padiah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zucur, the son of Mataniah, their assistant because they were con- considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their fellow Levites. Remember me for this, my God, and do not blot out what I have done so faithfully in the house of my God and its services. In those days, I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. People from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this wicked thing you have done, desecrating the Sabbath day? Didn't your ancestors do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity on us and on this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I sanctioned some of my own men at the gate so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you spend the night by the wall? If you do this again, I will arrest you. 
From that time on, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashad, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashad, Ashadad, and the language of one of the other peoples, and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, You are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, nor are you to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or for yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that uh, Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations, there was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and his God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing this, all this terrible wickedness, and are bringing, are being unfaithful to our God and marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Jodiah, son of Elishab, and the high priest was son-in-law to Sanbal the Hornite. And I drove him away from me. Remember them, my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites." So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provisions for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, my God. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, now that Thanksgiving is over, I feel like I can officially wish you a Merry Christmas. We had our Advent prayer, and so now it's official Christmas is here. It's the season of Christmas, and with it comes many seasonal things. There's, it's, it's, it's sort of the season of cheer. It's the season of goodwill. But most recently, it's become the season of the Hallmark Christmas movie. You know what I'm talking about. This year, the Hallmark Channel is producing 33 original holiday movies. That's up from six original holiday movies in 2010, 12 in 2014, uh, and 28 last year. They've now reached a new height and are producing 33 original holiday movies. It is anticipated that more than 85 million people are expected to watch the Hallmark Channel this holiday season. Raise your hand if you will be one of them. Okay, we've got some Hallmarkians among us. Good. This year, you will get to take in classics such as Christmas Made to Order, Jingle Around the Clock, A Gingerbread Romance, A Shoe shoe Addict's Christmas, and A Christmas in Graceland, Appointment Television for Pastor Mario. But why do people watch this stuff, right? This is actually something we mock and make fun of, these Christmas movies, right? It's certainly not for the high production value or the stirring writing or the brilliant acting. So what is it that makes Hallmark decide, we're going to make 33 of these things and 85 million people watch it? I think for some of us, in the midst of life's messiness and challenges, It's nice to watch an hour and a half story that has a happy ending that resolves at the end. Right? I think in the busyness and the stress and everything that's going on in life, it's nice to just sit down for 90 minutes and know at the end of this thing, everything's going to be okay. 
It's all, it's all, and then I have to go back to my life and all the hardship and messiness of that. But for man, for this 90 minutes, get your popcorn ready. Because we get to, we get to resolve something in the end. There's a happy ending. This is why we call these movies feel-good movies. They make us feel good in the end. But again, I think part of the popularity of that is because it's a juxtaposition to our own lives. We know when we watch the Hallmark movie that this isn't real life. When, when the guy meets the girl, the swelling of the music doesn't actually happen in real life. That doesn't actually go on, right? Relationships are messy and hard and, and, and don't often look like the Hallmark movies. And we're in this last chapter of Nehemiah, and when we look back, I think it's safe to say that he has been a faithful character. He's led well. He's loved well. And if Hallmark has taught us anything, he should have a satisfying ending that is neatly wrapped in a bow. But we know that's not real life. And what's amazing about the Bible is that the Bible is written from a real-life perspective. It's not a Hallmark movie. Nehemiah doesn't return with great fanfare and everything is working out and they put him up on their shoulders and parade him through the city. We're going to find here that things are just as bad as when he started. And it will make us ask some questions about remembering and goodness and what this is all about. About. But how did we get here? Because only a few verses ago, they were dedicating the wall and reading God's word and God's law and celebrating and doing it. What happened so quickly? Well, some of it is I, I want to kind of help us see sort of the timeline of Nehemiah because we, we lose track of the timeline often in this. And this is the reason we actually started uh, in, verse, uh, in verse 4 is because there's actually 11 and a half years that go by between verses 3 and verses 4 in Nehemiah 13. So if you look here at the screen, I wanted to give you a little timeline to help kind of visualize kind of what's going on and where, where it is that we, we kind of fall in the story. And so like I said, on that day that it says in verse 1, and the before this in verse 4, there's about 11 and a half year gap. So here's kind of a, a little outline of, of Nehemiah that might help you. So chapter 1, Nehemiah is in prayer. He is praying. He senses God is calling him to do this thing. And so he takes one month we know from different places in the Nehemiah text that give us dates and times and things like that. He prayed for a month before he then goes to the king and asks for permission to go. So between his prayer and him visiting the king, it's one month between chapters one and two. And then after he asks the king to go, and the king grants him permission, and they travel, and they inspect the wall, it's about six months. It takes about six months for Nehemiah to ask the king's permission, get all the supplies, actually travel out there and inspect the walls and get going. It takes about six months between those two events to happen. And then from chapters 3 until chapter 6, 14, it's all the building of the wall and the opposition to the wall. And so if you have your handout, it, you can follow along with this. Prayer, from prayer to visiting the king is one month. It takes one month from the prayer to the visit of the king. And then from the visit of the king to the completion of the building, 
is six months. It takes six months from the time that he asked the king to go from the, the time they're done with that, with all the opposition and all the building that comes with it. it takes about six months. When they're finished, they have a party. And I'm talking a whole month party. And so from the building and opposition to celebrating and dedicating is another month. They spend a whole month partying after this thing gets done. And so really all of chapters 6, 15 through chapter 13 is them dedicating and celebrating and celebrating the, the, fe- the, the feasts that have come up. Uh, they read the law. They weep at the law. They, they dedicate themselves to it. They start assigning things. And they, they take this whole month to really set, it up, set us up on the right track. Even in chapter 13, it says, on that day, right? It's, we're still in that celebratory time. On that day, they continue to read the law. And they continue to do things faithfully. They, add, they, they, they remove foreigners from among them. They're being faithful to God. And then we get to verse 4. And in verse 4, we begin to hear some of the backstory of what's now happening once Nehemiah leaves. Because the, from the celebration and the dedication to when the king, he leaves to go visit, it's actually 11 and a half years So that's your next fill-in. From the celebrating and dedicating to him finally leaving to go back to the king, he actually spends 11 and a half years ruling over Jerusalem, making sure that it's right. And we know this because of the dates. It says that he left to go build the wall in the king's 20th year, and then in verse 6 of chapter 13, it says he leaves, uh, he, he leaves again in his 32nd year. So 12, really 12 years when you put it all together that Nehemiah spends on this calling that he has. From prayer session to prayer session on the end, it's about 12 years. Now, finally, we don't know how long he was with the king. We don't know if he, w- he went back after 12 years and then spent 10 years with the king and came back, or if it was one month with the king. All it says in our t- passage is sometime later. And that's your final fill-in. From the king's visit to the final prayer is just sometime later. So Nehemiah could have left for 20 years. He could have left for one year. We don't know. All we know is that he spent 12 years on this work. 12 years of his life dedicated to bringing the people back to Jerusalem, building these walls, setting up a good foundation for his people. And then he leaves. We even see a few weeks ago, uh, Pastor Ben talked about, they even set up leaders. He made sure that leaders were ready and, and, and everything was in order so that eventually when he left, everything would be ready to go so that it wasn't dependent on him to keep this thing running. Have you ever put 12 years of work into something? This is what Nehemiah does. He puts 12 years in it. So his return in chapter 13, again, if Hallmark has taught us anything, his return back in chapter 13 should be somewhat of a homecoming, right? 
This is supposed to be his triumphal return, his swan song, his pinnacle, the final scene in his Hallmark movie. And you would think he would use the last chapter to give some inspiring words or reflections or wisdom or some reminiscing. We're supposed to be remembering the good that Nehemiah has done. And instead, the last chapter reveals that he may actually need anger management. It says that he's very angry in verse 8, and he throws furniture out of the temple. It sort of reminds me of a jilted romance where one person throws the other person's stuff out the window. He warns and even threatens those who are breaking the Sabbath. It says this, I warned them and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall on the Sabbath? If you do so again, your Bible, in the Pew Bible, it says, we'll arrest you. But the Hebrew says, I will put hands on you. And then by the end of the chapter, he makes good on that threat. In 25, he says, then I confronted them and I cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. I don't know, Pastor Mario, have you ever felt like beating anyone here at the church? Pulling out some hair? He's pulling out other people's hairs, but really he's pulling out his own. Can you imagine the disappointment? He comes back after some time later. He's put 12 years worth of work into this thing. And all around him is a mess. Is a mess. When Nehemiah returns sometimes later, he finds that the people have forgotten everything that they've promised. Everything that in this celebratory and dedication time, this month long, which takes up a majority of Nehemiah. Again, we lose, trap of, trap, lose track of the perspective here. But the large bulk of Nehemiah is spent celebrating, dedicating, reading the Bible, and promising that we will never do this again. In fact, when Nehemiah comes back and he, and he calls people out on that, he refers back to their ancestors. He said, they were doing this and this is what got us in the mess in the first place. How could you have forgotten? Do you remember what we went through? Do you remember the work it took? Do you remember the 12 years we spent getting this thing going? I leave for who knows how much time. I come back and you've forgotten You've forgotten. Can you imagine the disappointment in Nehemiah? Can you imagine the heartbreak? You've you've forgotten. What have they forgotten? There's three major things that Nehemiah calls out in this last passage. Three major things that he sees and he has to fix. And the reason that he has to fix and the reason that we're given these three specific things is because only a few chapters later, they promise not to do these three specific things. Literally, the three things they promised a few chapters ago are the three things they are now doing now. What are they? Number one, they neglected the offerings. This is in your insert. Or forgetting to worship, really, is what it comes down to. They forget to worship. Because it's really not about the offering. The offerings were specific to the service of the temple. 
They were not giving their offerings, and so the Levites and the singers and those who were in charge of keeping God's uh, house together and keeping the worship going weren't getting paid. They weren't paying their pastors, which is a grave sin, church. Grave sin. And because of this, the Levites, the priests, and the singers had to go back to their fields. They had to go get jobs. They had a family to support. They went to go work at Target because they couldn't keep the service of God going. They couldn't keep the house going because the tithes and the offerings weren't coming in. And because there was no offerings, like I said, the Levites abandoned their posts. And since there were no offerings or activity, the storerooms were empty. And so with all that extra space, one of the priests was using it for political gain. We mentioned Tobiah, who was one of the uh, main oppressors of the people as they built this wall. He was getting rent-free space for his personal belongings in the temple. He was keeping a toothbrush in the temple. And so these three major things all happen, but really the umbrella of it all is they forget to worship. The temple had ceased. The festivals had ceased. The daily and weekly rhythms of remembering were gone. They forgot to worship. And what we find in Nehemiah 10, actually just a few verses later, is that these are the exact same three things they promise to do. In Nehemiah 10, 32, these are the, this is the people speaking. This is their big promise. This is their big I do. These are their vows, as we talked about a few weeks ago, of their marriage ceremony. And they promise this. They say, we assume the responsibility to give a third of a shekel each year for the service of the house of God. That's their first promise in Nehemiah 10, 32. Two verses later, here's number second promise. The priests... They're speaking of themselves. Determined when each of our families is to bring wood to burn on the altar of the Lord our God. We've casted lots, they say, and we know when each of us are going to go do this so that the house will not be neglected. And finally, they promise, two verses after that in 35, we also assume responsibility for bringing to the house of the Lord each year the first, fruit, first, the first fruits for the storehouse. Wouldn't you know those are the exact three things that they forget to do? The storerooms are empty, so Tobiah moves in. The priests neglect their posts because there is no tithe. And they forget to worship. The point here is that they had not allowed the worship of God, they had allowed the worship of God to stop. They were not intentional to do the things needed to continue gathering and worship. And when we gather together, we gather to remember. That's really the point of worship. We gather to remember. That's what we do each and every work week here at the church. We gather to remember. Worship is an act of remembering. We are remembering who God is, what he has done, and what he says about us. And when we stop worshiping, we stop remembering. And when we stop remembering, we forget.
we forget. And when we forget who God is and what he has done and who he says we are, we forget to trust him. Which is the number two thing they forget to do. Sabbath violations. Forgetting to trust. When you stop worshiping, you stop remembering. And when you stop remembering, you stop trusting. The Sabbath is a weekly reminder to trust. The first time that we see the Israelites observing the Sabbath is actually right after they cross the Red Sea as they leave Egypt. I actually want to read this portion to you because I think this will make the point well. This is actually Exodus 16, 21 through 30. Let me read it for you. This is God speaking. He says, Each morning everyone gathered as much as they needed. And when the sun grew hot, it melted away. And on the sixth day, they gathered twice as much, two omers for each person. And the leaders of the community came and reported this to Moses. And Moses said to them, this is what the Lord commanded. Tomorrow is to be a day of Sabbath rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. So bake what you want to bake and boil what you want to boil. Save whatever is left and keep it until morning. So they saved it until morning, as Moses commanded, and it did not stink or get maggots in it. Eat it today, Moses said, because today is a Sabbath to the Lord. You will not find any of it on the ground today. Six days you are to gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will not be any. Nevertheless, some of the people went out on the Sabbath to gather it, but they had found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commands and my instructions? Bear in mind that the Lord has given you the Sabbath. That is why on the sixth day he gives you bread for two days. Everyone is to stay where they are on the seventh. No one is to go out. So the people rested on the seventh day. Wow, that's really small. (laughs) Just trust me that that's what it says. The point. Six days you're to work, but the seventh day you rest. Don't do any work on the seventh day because the seventh day is the day to remember. Don't work. Trust me. Trust me that I will send enough in day six so that you don't have to do anything on day seven. And yet still some, it says in the text, doesn't, don't trust and go out and try to collect on the Sabbath day. They go out and collect because they don't trust They try to depend on themselves. They try to depend on their own work. And God says, no, no, no. The Sabbath is the day for you to remember that it all comes from me. Everything comes from me. So this is the day to trust me. The world will go on without you. You're not that important. Your work does not depend on whether or not you're going to get enough. It only depends on me. And so we honor the Sabbath to trust. And what Nehemiah finds is that people are working on the Sabbath. They are trading, treading wine presses and loading materials and selling food. Some men even sleep outside the gates waiting for the Sabbath to end so that they could be first for the next day. I sense anxiousness in them. They're not trusting. They're not at peace. Sabbath is about trusting God's provision. It reminds us that we're not ultimately in control. And when we don't trust God, 
we run to something else to put our trust in. Our job, our finances, our security, our families. And we will sit outside the gates of our idols in anxiousness instead of resting in peace. Where in your life are you not trusting? Where in your life are you not remembering? Where in your life are you not worshiping? Because there's this pattern of sin. When we stop worshiping, we stop trusting. And when we stop trusting, we give ourselves away. And the last thing is foreign marriage, forgetting to be faithful. You see, there's this pattern that happens. When we stop worshiping, stop actively remembering, we stop trusting. And when we stop trusting, we start to give our hearts away to other things because we think we, we might be able to put our trust in that. The whole idea behind exile is that you take a group of people out of their land and mix them up with other people. And slowly the hope was is that they would begin to forget about their beliefs and their customs and their practices. The significance of Israel coming back to the land is in the act of remembering their identity, who they are, and reestablishing their distinct nature as God's people who follow God's law. And so the act of intermarrying with other nations and therefore other gods is antithetical to their story. It is the symbolic gesture of committing yourself to someone other than God. You stop worshiping. And so you stop trusting. And so you stop being faithful. You forget faithfulness. Who or what do we give ourselves to? And what lack of trust does that stem from? And where have you missed worship to lose that trust? Everything that we've done, every sin we've committed, every mistake we've made can basically be summed backwards to that. What have I given myself to? What lack of trust does that stem from? And where have I missed the remembering in order to lose that trust? So after this whole journey of praying and planning and approaching and leading and inspecting and inspiring and building and enduring, organizing and establishing and even the harassing and the assaulting, amidst this mess, Nehemiah's prayer is, remember me, oh my God, for good. It's the last lines of the, of the book almost like a cliffhanger. How's it going to end? I don't know. But God, remember me for good. But Nehemiah just isn't asking God to remember in general, but like I said, he's remembering him for, for favor or for good. The word here in Hebrew is the word tov, and it actually has two meanings. One, Tov can mean good done by someone. This is probably the, uh, the one that we generally move towards. God, remember me for good. Remember me for the good I have done. 
We find this meaning in places like Psalm 25. You can see it up here on the screen. It says this. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways according to your love. Remember me for good. The end. That tove. Don't remember me for what I have done. This is David speaking, and David made some mistakes in his life, but at the end, his prayer is, do not remember me for the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways, but according to your love, remember me for good, for the good I've done, because you're good, he, he goes on to say, because you are good, remember me for good. Don't remember me for the, the, my sins over the course of my life, but remember me for the times I was faithful. Remember me for the times I kept your law. Remember me for the times I was obedient. I see Nehemiah's prayer as one of God. Remember me for the good that came despite this messy outcome that happened. Maybe you've been discouraged. Maybe you're in a season of reflection as you look back and strain to see the fruit of your life. And your prayer can be like Nehemiah's, who looks at the fruit of his work and doesn't see a lot of success on the outside. And he says, God, remember me for good. Remember me for good. I've shared my story a, a, a few times about my uh, uh, years planning a church in Rochester with, with my wife. We spent four years getting a congregation from nothing to a semi-thriving, semi-community uh, that could hold itself up. But after four years, it was too much. And we were tired, and our community was tired, and we weren't growing. And we finally had to say, we, it's, it's, time, it's time to move on. And as I look back at my time in those four years, my prayer truly is, Remember me for good. Despite the mess, despite what it turned out to be, it wasn't what we were hoping for. But God, remember us for good. I feel Nehemiah. But God, remember us for good. May that be your prayer too. If you're struggling, if you're feeling aimless, if you look back and you're not seeing a lot of fruit in your life, God, would you remember me for good despite what it turned out to be? But there's a second meaning to the word. If one is good, the good done by someone, the second meaning is the good done for someone or the good done on the behalf of someone. It can be translated as prosperity or even salvation. Remember the good not done by me, but the good done for me. We find this in places like Psalm 106. It says this, Remember me, Lord, for when you show favor to the people, come to my aid when, when you save them, that I may enjoy the tov, the prosperity, the good of your chosen one that I may share in the joy of your nation and join your inheritance in giving praise. Not something I've done, but something that's done for me. Prosperity or even salvation. Because despite my good works and deeds and times I was faithful, they won't be enough. 
They're never enough. We will forget to worship. We will forget to trust. We will forget to be faithful. But God, remember the good on that day when I know it's not enough. Remember the good that has been done on my behalf. The good that was done 2,000 years ago when Jesus hung on a cross and cried, Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? For a moment, God chose to forget his son so that he could remember you. And despite my sin, and despite my failures, and despite my shortcomings, God, remember me for good. That was done on my behalf. God, remember me for good for the little I've accomplished, for the little I've given, for the little faithfulness that I might have scored it out in this life. But God, remember me for good. Would the band come up as we finish? Lord, when we look back on our life, may we know that despite what it looked like, despite the outcome, despite what our hopes and our dreams were, that you will remember it for good. That even if it looked like failure in the eyes of others, and that we've given years of our life only for it to look like a mess in the end. Remember us for good. But God, we know it's not enough. It's never enough. So remember us for the good that was done on our behalf. Remember us at the expense of a son who was forgotten on that cross. this whole story is about you from beginning to end. This whole story of Nehemiah is a story about you from beginning to end. And so remember, we love you, Jesus. In your name I pray.